You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 5720 Ridge Avenue. For more information, check out circleofhope.net or join us in person on Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. But I've been starting these talks this season with a good news story because I think we need to hear more of that. And um, since I've been doing it, people have sent me good news stories or just even shared them on, on Facebook, I've seen. Like, Nepal's tiger conservation efforts have succeeded in nearly doubling the, the tiger population. Um, or a wounded Afghanistan veteran helping Colin Powell change his tire. You guys see any of these news stories? There's good news out there, you just have to look for it. Um, this week, of course, the US government employees are back to work, at least for three weeks after a 35-day shutdown. And while this shutdown was taking place, or in process, uh, with no end in sight, the president holding firmly to this message that we must build a border wall to keep immigrants out of this country, Yassine's falafel house in Knoxville, Tennessee, provided free meals to federal employees and their families who had not been receiving paychecks. The owner of this restaurant is a Syrian refugee named Yassine Tarot, um, and he's become a beloved part of his community since migrating to the U.S. Uh, in 2011. And for the last four years, he has used his restaurant as a neighborhood sanctuary for everyone, welcoming even those who have been hostile to him and his family. So on top of that good news, the community is responding. Local community members are pitching in to cover the costs of these free meals by making donations to the restaurant. Now, I have never run a restaurant, obviously, uh, but it seems to me that this is a pretty risky move. There are a lot of restaurants out there that are not feeding government employees for free. And of course, Yasin is an immigrant responding to a need created by the controversy of building a wall that would keep out immigrants. So I thought it was good news worth telling when his sacrifice and character is sending an opposing message to our country. As Joel said, we're in the season of Epiphany, which we celebrated a few weeks ago with many of the worldwide Christian church and we decided to continue with a whole season in the shadow of the wise men looking for this manifestation of God. Epiphany means manifestation, an event or an action that clearly shows or embodies something. So we are looking for ways that God reveals God's self to us through Jesus too. And we wanna know who God is and who we are in relationship to God. So we're seeking with the wise men. And finding that Jesus, encounters with Jesus change us. After the wise men encountered Jesus, they went back to their country by another route. I don't know a lot about travel um, in those days, but I imagine that going the way that you came would be safer. You recognize where you've been. You can anticipate the challenging parts. 
Travel in those days had its own dangers and inconveniences, so I imagine that returning to their country by another route was harder, and it was uncharted territory. Old ways for us are known and familiar and easier to travel. It takes a lot of effort for us to chart a new course, but there are a lot of self-help and motivational resources out there to help us change. I was exploring some of that this week. Just endless resources that promise to help you create the best version of you. Optimize your life all day, every day. There's so much content that you can get through programs and books and articles and videos to help you live your best life. There are master's classes uh, with techniques to apply so that you can be super productive day in and day out. Upgrade every area of your life, whether you're breaking bad habits or for forming new ones. Changing your behavior can seem like a daunting task, but there's a pretty simple formula for understanding how you can change your habits. Actualize your life in three simple steps. Listen to this podcast to get more wisdom in less time. Apply, integrate, transform into the person that you were meant to be. You get the idea. And even if you felt anxious while I was saying all of that, there, there's a part of each of us that does want to be better, right? That knows that we need to change and we struggle to do it. How can Jesus help us with that? What does Jesus have to say about optimizing your life? What does changing for the better look like? And then how do we get there as followers of Jesus? We probably all have more that we want to do, or things that we want to be better at, risks that we want to take. It's not bad to become a better version of ourselves. But how do we get there, and what does there look like anyway? What is the standard or the reference point that we're going for? <coughs> From national leaders pre uh, presenting a picture of what it means to be great, to social media that's feeding us ongoing images of whose life is the greatest, we live in a culture that thoroughly trains us to achieve and accomplish and appear a certain way. I think it's pretty understandable that we want to be great at something or anything or at least the thing that we do, right? The disciples of Jesus felt this too and they argued with each other about who was the greatest among them. Whether we overtly argue <coughs> or not, I think it's definitely in the air that we breathe. There's a passage in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 37, where the disciples are arguing about which of them is the greatest. And it's a pretty popular passage. You probably have heard it before. We're not going to read it tonight. I'll let you go home and read it yourself. I'm going to talk our way through it, though. Jesus tells them that if you want to be first, you must be last and be a servant of all. And then he, he puts a child in to stand among them. And he hugs the child and says, whoever 
welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. It's clear that Jesus had a different idea about greatness. But it's one thing to get this concept intellectually, and then it's another thing to live an ongoing life where you're working it out. We might need help with it, just like the disciples did. Help to stop comparing ourselves with others, or working to position ourselves, even in our own minds, as greater than those around us. We need a new reference point that frees us from the constant comparison and evaluation game that the disciples were demonstrating on that road. Even as they were walking with Jesus, they were caught up in comparisons and evaluations, wanting honor for themselves. It's obvious through their dispute with each other that they didn't really understand yet who Jesus was and what he was doing there. They were, they were stuck in their own expectations of who he was and what he was gonna do. And they were missing half of his message. They only had a reference point for their ideas of a Messiah. In the ancient Jewish world, their long-awaited Messiah was not just another term, um, that we have come to have for Jesus. It was, it was mostly a term that was referenced, referenced a coming king who would be King David's heir, true heir, through whom Yahweh, the God of Israel, would rescue Israel from their pagan enemies. So the Jewish people had differing expectations of a Messiah, but they were based on stories and promises from scripture that led to this idea of a military defeat of Israel's enemies and rebuilding the temple. Those are the two main ideas for this Messiah that they were waiting for. So the disciples understood that Jesus would lead Israel in a military defeat, and they anticipated a royal position as his followers. Elsewhere in the Gospels, the same idea was repeated, that Jesus might grant a place of honor and status to those that he chose when he was a ruling king. So the disciples were arguing along the way about who among them would be the greatest, or was the greatest. And Jesus uses a child who in that time and culture was not highly regarded to turn their thinking upside down. Aside from normal family affection, children were not honored. They had no status or prestige. So Jesus was making it clear that they won't gain any favor or social standing because they were his followers. And then he makes this further point to say that anyone who receives even a child in his name will, will receive Jesus himself and through that, we'll receive the one who sent me. That was Jesus' common reference for God. So in other words, anyone associated with Jesus can become the means to royalty 
even access to God. And the disciples wouldn't have any special privileges or status or claim to that honor just because they were with him now. Jesus was making a way for everyone to have access to God in his kingdom. Elsewhere, he said that you must become like a child to enter the kingdom. The way that Jesus talks about children reminded me of one of our um, cell helpers uh, who was telling the cell leaders a couple weeks ago, her cell was hosting this meeting and so she was downstairs with the, the kids um, helping with the early elementary age kids and she said she spent a good bit of the night helping kids as they colored, putting caps back on the markers. And she admitted that our society puts so much pressure on millennials in particular to optimize their lives, to make everything measured and valuable and efficient, that a trip to the post office seems like a total waste of time. How much less an evening of putting caps on markers with elementary school children. And yet, this experience helped her tap into a deeper sense of her existence in the body of Christ. Being a part of the church can do that. It's a very practical way to turn our hearts and minds to go the way with Jesus. And it can actually literally change the direction of your life. I have experienced this personally. Uh, the way we do things around here is not um, the, the world's picture for best practices for optimizing your time and energy. We're doing something very different in the kingdom of God. We spend a lot of time in dialogue and relating to each other. We do everything in teams. We even we'll even use you on a team doing something that you are not particularly expert at because we are all growing together. And our meetings, our compassion efforts, our leadership are all opportunities to share and bring what the Spirit of God is giving you to bring. In the kingdom of God, we serve each other. It's almost like giving away free meals because there's a need. It doesn't make any sense to the world. It's an upside down way of doing business. It's a countercultural message. That's what Jesus was teaching his disciples. He's still teaching us how to think of ourselves, not more highly than we ought, but as one who serves. The interesting thing about this story is that it comes right after Jesus is teaching the disciples privately, explaining to them what's going to happen next. <coughs> He's preparing them by predicting his death. He told them that he would be betrayed into the hands of men, that they would kill him, and after three days he would rise. But the disciples didn't understand this. They thought he was teaching them in code. Um, Jesus often taught in parables that hid a deeper meaning because the general public wasn't ready to hear the full reality of what he was saying. And then he would explain to the disciples directly when they were alone. 
he would reveal the hidden things to them. But in this case, it was just them. He was privately with the disciples and he was revealing the truth about his purpose plainly. And they thought he must have another meaning. But they were afraid to ask him what the true meaning was. And they missed it completely because they had no concept that this could actually be the literal truth. There was no reference point for a Messiah who would suffer and die. This was an example of their old ways leading them. They didn't fit, Jesus didn't fit into their patterned way of thinking or what they had come to expect. He was going in a different direction and he wanted them to follow him in the way he would go. But it was so hard for them to grasp. They were even afraid to ask about it, afraid to explore what Jesus might really mean, because it was going to cost them something. And Jesus knew what was in their hearts. He, he knew that they didn't have the truth yet. That, that, that showed up later in this argument about greatness along the road. And it's interesting to me that he waited to address their arguing until they got to Capernaum. Mark 9.30 starts with them traveling through Galilee while he's predicting his death to them. And they don't understand, they don't ask for clarification. And then somewhere between there and the house in Capernaum, they argue about who is the greatest. Now, as a parent, I can understand um, it takes a lot of restraint sometimes to not jump into the arguments that my kids are having. Usually, I want to set them straight and make the truth known right then and there. Let them see what I'm seeing. Uh, but sometimes, I recognize that jumping in at that moment is not the best time. Whatever it is that I want them to understand is going to be lost in that moment. And if I wait, I might have a better opportunity to teach them something if I can get them to reflect on it later when it's you know, not in the heat of the moment. I don't always have this clarity. But it seems like Jesus did because he obviously heard them and he waited to address it until later. So when they're in the house, he uses a child to make his point. And in the next chapter, the disciples are still thinking like this. They didn't get his point even yet. James and John ask Jesus to give them seats of honor at his right hand and his left hand in Jesus' kingdom. And again, Jesus predicts his death. He patiently responds. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave to all. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I take great comfort uh, that James and John didn't turn away from themselves immediately. Their eyes were so trained on themselves that it takes time. And they were even literally walking with Jesus. 
In fact, John is the only one of Jesus' 12 disciples that follows him the whole way to the cross. So it made me wonder what happens in John between this passage where they're arguing about being the greatest and the crucifixion. This is the kind of turnaround that Jesus is leading us to do. And look where it takes us, to the cross with Jesus. Even while following Jesus, John's heart is caught up in himself and his own expectations. He has Jesus in front of him saying, no, this isn't the way. It isn't my way. My way is the one that leads to death. If you're going to follow me, you must die to yourself and become like one who serves. You must become like a humble child, not living for yourself and what status you can achieve. Everyone who comes through me has equal standing with God. Stop comparing yourselves. Stop wishing you had favor or thinking your walk, means, walk with me earns you something more than someone else. The desire for greatness can be so strong in our own lives that we are actually afraid to go there with Jesus. We're afraid, like John was, to ask Jesus what he really means when he talks about his death, becoming a servant, suffering. We want to keep our place as a follower, but hold on to our expectations of what we think Jesus will do for us. We want a Messiah that saves by killing the enemies, not loving them, not being killed himself. We want a Messiah who grants us special privileges, not calls us to a life of self-sacrifice and servanthood. At least it's easy to slip into that with the disciples. The turning around in our hearts is usually a process like a day-to-day -day practice of turning, more than a miraculous healing. Jesus suddenly, so certainly does miraculous healings where a change of direction is instant, but it's usually more like uncharted territory where we face new challenges and have to look to Jesus for our provision. We have to choose to not go the way that we know, the way of self-preservation and security, but to take the risks of a new territory of humility and sacrifice and servanthood. And John didn't know it yet, but resurrection is what Jesus came to do. It was not just about dying. It was to make a way into a whole new life, a new reality of the kingdom of God here and now. We get to experience that way with Jesus only when we follow him through death first. Jesus isn't calling us to optimize our lives. We aren't, we aren't the reference point for what's most valuable or efficient. May we keep turning with John even when it's hard to learn, so that we can get to the cross as well as the resurrection life.
Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.